Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I hope if you got nothing else from the last couple of weeks, I hope you recognize that the kingdom spoken of in the Bible has physical aspects and spiritual aspects. And last week we looked more closely at the Abrahamic covenant so that we could see how the physical and spiritual aspects of the covenant were separated as the promises flowed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Jacob's 12 sons, divided up then between Ephraim and Judah, and that through Judah the Messiah is going to come. By the time the Messiah actually comes and is on the planet, he speaks, as we heard Bobby read this morning, He speaks of the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus was able to just say that almost like shorthand because the audience he was speaking to, the Jewish audience that was following him, already knew what the kingdom was. And the reason that they already knew so much about the kingdom was because of what the prophets in the Old Testament had already spoken about the kingdom to come. The kingdom that is promised to come includes restoration of all 12 tribes of Israel. It includes the Gentile nations flowing to Jerusalem. It includes David's greater son sitting on the throne of David, ruling from Jerusalem, Those are all aspects of the kingdom to come that are prophesied in the Old Testament. The Jewish prophets speak with one voice. They're very unified in this message of a glorious future for Israel. So when Jesus is on the planet and he says, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, That is completely in league with what the prophets have been predicting for a thousand years, building up to the time that Jesus is on the planet. Very importantly, once Jesus was here, he did not change the concept of the kingdom. The concept of the kingdom was already defined by the prophets. All Jesus had to do was make reference to the kingdom, and they knew exactly what kingdom he was talking about. Now, granted, as I said when we began talking kingdom talk weeks ago, granted, Christ is a king right now, sitting on a throne, but he's not sitting on David's throne, because David did not rule from heaven. David ruled over the united 12 tribes of Israel, and that's what the Davidic covenant includes, that David's greater son would sit on David's throne ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. The language is very, very specific. The language of the Abrahamic covenant is very, very specific. It is also very, very physical. And I hope if you've seen anything during the weeks that we were looking at the prophecies of Daniel and the kingdoms that were on earth, that succession of kingdoms is ultimately crushed when the rock comes down out of heaven and crushes the ten-toed kingdom and the whole rest of the statue falls down in a heap and then the wind blows it away and Christ establishes the kingdom that will endure forever. Well, that has to be a physical kingdom because the previous seven kingdoms were all physical, earthly, literal kingdoms. And so starting at the prophets of the Old Testament, which is what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to start with the really familiar stuff, and then we're going to work to the more 
slightly obscure stuff, but you're going to see that they all say the same thing. And really, if you got somewhere to be today, like a football game, <laughs> if you've got somewhere to be today, you could leave right now and you have the essence of the message from this morning because the essence of the message is the promise of a physical, literal kingdom with Christ on the throne ruling from Jerusalem over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. That's what all the prophets promise. Therefore, when Jesus comes and says that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, usually when I quote that, I put an emphasis on the law to say that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. But this morning, I want to put the emphasis on the prophets. He didn't come to abolish the prophets. He came to fulfill the prophets, which means everything we read in the prophets, Jesus validated. And he didn't change it, and he didn't say, you know what the prophets said? That is now all spiritual. That is now all going to be satisfied in some spiritual way. What we're arguing for this morning is the literal, physical, historic kingdom to come that we are still praying, thy kingdom come. You got it? Like I said, we're going to start with the familiar. Let's start at Ezekiel 37. Turn there because we're going to read pretty much all 28 verses. You know this vision that God gave Ezekiel. Ezekiel is standing in the middle of a valley full of dry bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the spirit of the Lord. He set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. And again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life and I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you so that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold, a rattling and bone came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, come, says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they would come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came alive, and they stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Okay, if you've grown up in Sunday school at all, you know that story. Usually when that is preached, they stop right there and then begin extrapolating. If you want to know more about that, I've got YouTube videos about it. We've preached extensively about this. The point that I keep trying to make is God interprets this vision for us. So any other interpretation is incorrect. The correct interpretation is given to us in the text from God. Here's the interpretation. He said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Who are the bones? The whole house of Israel. Okay, who is the house of Israel? That's the northern ten tribes. The house of Judah, the house of Israel. The northern ten tribes at this point have been scattered. They are in the Assyrian captivity. They have yet, to this very day, to year 2020, they have yet to reoccupy their land, though it is promised to them in perpetuity. And nevertheless, God says, this scattered nation is these dry bones. 
He said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is perished and we are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and I will cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel And then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. Notice that even though their state is that they are cut off, that they consider themselves as dead, as perished, and they are completely cut off from their promise, cut off from their land, and they say our bones are dried up, God continues speaking to them as my people. He hasn't forgotten them. They're his people. He knows where they are, and he's the one that scattered them. And he knows where he scattered them, and he's able to regather them. And he has promised them that he's going to regather them. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. And I will put my spirit within you And you will come to life, and I will place you in your own land, and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? I will put my spirit in you. That's everything we believe about being born again. God says, Israel, which is dried up, which is cut off, which is scattered among the nations, Israel is going to be regathered. He's going to plant them in their own land. The language couldn't be more specific. And I will place you in your own land, and I will put my spirit within you, which is so vitally important because when Jesus is on the planet describing the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth to come, he says to his apostles, he will be with you and he will be in you. That's a new paradigm that the spirit of God will not just rest on people like King Saul and then be taken away like King Saul, but that the spirit of God will abide with you, will stay with you and will be in you. Here God promises national Israel that he will place his spirit in them. That is part of the new covenant, that God is going to put his spirit in them and that they are all going to know the Lord from the least to the greatest of them. Now, Judah and Israel, national Judah and national Israel, as you know from the bits of history that we've talked about, they are always at contention with each other. And in fact, the northern tribes made deals with some of the surrounding Gentile nations to help them in their warfare against the southern kingdom who had made deals with other Gentile nations to defend themselves against the encroachments of the northern tribes. So there was a tremendous amount of enmity going on between the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the next thing that the Lord says is, starting at verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, and you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it, For Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel and his companions. Then join them for yourself, one to the other, into one stick, so that they may become one in your hand. And when the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? You will then say to them, okay, so God has given Ezekiel an object lesson, two sticks. On one of it, right house of Judah. On the other, right house of Israel. The northern and the southern tribes, the northern and the southern kingdoms. Take those two sticks, put them together in your hand, and walk around with those in your hand so that people will say, hey, Zeke, what's the deal with the sticks in your hand? That's the whole point of this object lesson. Now God will give us the proper interpretation. Any other interpretation is wrong. And it says, Say to them, thus says the Lord God, this is verse 19, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, 
and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with the stick of Judah, and I will make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand, and the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. And you will say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, where I have scattered them. And I will gather them from every side, and I will bring them back into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountain of Israel. And one king will be king over all of them. And they will no longer be two nations, and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. That's the proper interpretation according to God. That sounds like a sure guarantee of the regathering of Israel to me, a regathering of all 12 tribes, even those that God has scattered into the Gentile nations. But wait, God's not done. Long as he's making promises of the regathering of the northern and the southern kingdoms, since they're going to be one kingdom with one king, he now talks about the one king. Verse 24, and my servant David will be king over them. And they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances, and they will keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live in the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. That's why it's so important that you understood that the Abrahamic covenant included a land promise that went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Now God says, that land that I gave Jacob, that's very specific land. It's the land of Israel. It's the land of Canaan. It is a land promise that reaches out all the way to the Nile River and all the way out to the Euphrates River. That land that he promised to Jacob, they shall dwell there. They shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. There's that forever kingdom we keep hearing about. There's the establishment of the throne of David again. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and I will multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever my dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people I like it when God says I will (coughs) when God determines to do stuff and then says he will do it that's a rock solid guarantee that is something God is going to do because he said I will the moment that God said to Shane you will be mine Guess what happened? Shane was his. Shane didn't have much choice in the matter because it was God who determined, I'm going to change you, I'm going to save you, I'm going to draw you, I'm going to remake you, I'm going to make you born again, I'm going to put my spirit inside you, I'm going to give you eternal guarantees based on a covenant I made with my son, an unconditional promise of your eternal salvation, because the God of eternality can talk about eternality as if he knows exactly what's going to happen because he's in charge of everything that is forever. Therefore, the same way that he could say that to Shane, he can say to the 12 tribes of national Israel, you will be my people. You get it? And I will be your God. And these are rebellious people who have been scattered for generations and generations and thousands of years. And nevertheless, God has not lost them because he made an unconditional covenant to Abraham that began this entire process. 
And because it's unconditional, he is still going to do everything that he promised Abraham he was going to do. And there is no way that you can say that God has negated the promises that he made to Israel without saying that he negated the Abrahamic covenant. And it is on the basis of the everlasting, unconditional Abrahamic covenant that Christ Jesus came to satisfy the promises made by God. So you really are in a theological dilemma if you say that God is now done with Israel. Any kind of theology that says that is a theology that is saying the word of God in the Old Testament, the sure word, where God said things and then said, I will do them based on nothing more than me and my character And my faithfulness to my own word, you have to say, God changed his mind. God is capricious. God's not like that. And if that's the God you have, you have no hope. Because that God could change his mind about you. He could change his mind about Shane. He could do all that for Shane, even send his son to die for Shane. And then later, Shane could do something where God would say, never mind, I didn't mean you. But if he could hold on to Israel for thousands of years despite their sinfulness and then say, I'm going to put my spirit in you and I'm going to forgive you for all your transgressions and I will deliver you from all the dwelling places in which you have sinned and then I will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. Well, then you have every right to have plenty of hope. Because if he can do that for Israel, he can do that for you. But my argument is also, if he did that for you, he can do that for Israel. You get it? And my servant David is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances, and they will keep my statutes. And they will observe them, and they shall be in the land that I gave Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them And it will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people, and the nations, the Gentile nations, will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel." God just identified himself as the God who sanctifies Israel. And he even said, that's going to be my evidence. When I sanctify Israel, when I regather Israel, when I establish Israel, and I do that in Israel, in Jerusalem, when I do that, then the Gentile nations are going to know that I'm that God of this Bible. I am the God of Israel. The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So that's God's plan. That's what God intends to do. Now that prophecy in its entirety either has to come true or let's just go home because there's lots of sinning left to be done and apparently there's no actual God in heaven or this is all true. We say we stand on the word of God. We say sola scriptura. We also say tota scriptura. All of scripture. Well then if we reformed folks are going to stand on all of scripture, we also have to stand on that. And that promise doesn't change. As I've already mentioned... Daniel the prophet, you've already read, you've already heard, I've already shown you how there is a succession of kingdoms, earthly, physical kingdoms, that culminates in the return of Christ when he destroys the kingdoms of this world and then sets up his kingdom that's going to last forever. Turn to Isaiah 9. You know this. 
especially around this season of the year, you're going to hear Isaiah 9 again and again. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. This is going to sound very, very familiar to you. For unto us a child is born. See, as soon as you hear those words, you go, oh yeah, that's one of the most commonly known pieces of scripture from the Bible. Even non-Christians know that. It even says it in their Christmas cards. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Okay, did that happen? Yeah, absolutely, that happened 2,000 years ago in a manger outside of Bethlehem. Yes, absolutely, a son was born and a child was given. The son of God was born, a child was given. He was made human flesh so that he could empathize with his brethren in the flesh. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The very next phrase is, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Did that happen? No, that didn't happen. But the first half of that sentence happened. What does that tell you about the second half? Tells you that also has to happen. When he was here, he not only didn't take up the reins of government, he resisted when they tried to make him king. Because he knew it wasn't time for him to be king yet. It was time for him to come and die for the salvation of his people, to pay the sin debt for his people. But it wasn't time for him to come rule and reign. But what we just read out of Ezekiel is that he's coming to rule and reign. And the promise is, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, And there will be no end to the increase of his government. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's what we just read out of Ezekiel. That his kingdom is going to last forever. There's going to be no end to the ongoing, increasing nature of his rule and governance here on earth. But then, read how specific this is. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. Remember, God said, I'm going to make a covenant of peace that's going to be everlasting on the throne of David. That's exactly what we just read out of Ezekiel, that he's going to rule on the throne of David. For what reason? To rule over his kingdom to establish his kingdom and to uphold his kingdom with justice and righteousness from then on and evermore. And the zeal, the heat, the fervency of God, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Will. So the next time that you hear unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given. Do not truncate that from the whole rest of the promise, which is, and he's going to be king. Here on earth, on David's throne, and his righteousness is going to be overflowing. He's going to establish it. He's going to uphold it in justice and righteousness from that point forward forevermore. And how do you know it's going to happen? Because the fervency of the Lord of hosts. That word, the Lord of hosts, means the God of everyone and everything. The God who is sovereign over all will perform this. And the sure guarantee of the kingdom to come is the fact that a son is born and a child was given. The very fact that when I asked you, has that happened? You all went, yes. In fact, that was your tone of voice. You, you all went, yes. Okay, well, if that happened, then you can certainly guarantee that the rest of it's going to happen. Or as I said, God's not God. It's really that straightforward, and it's that simple. Turn to Micah. The book of Micah, chapter 4. 
We just read out of two major prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel. Micah is one of the minor prophets. He writes a smaller book, a smaller prophecy, and yet you're going to notice that he says the exact same thing because the prophets, as I keep saying, speak with a unified voice. Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. Where is the mountain of the house of the Lord? Jerusalem. There's no place else it can be. It's the place where God placed his name. It's where the temple of God resides. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. In other words, whatever power there is in the world, the primary power is going to reside in Jerusalem. That is going to be the chief mountain. And it will be raised above the hills and the peoples, the Gentiles, the Goyim will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. Notice how specific that is. Not the God of Abraham, not the God of Isaac, but the God of Jacob. Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel, let us go to the house of the God of Israel, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion, where is Zion? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that's a nickname for Jerusalem. Mount Zion is actually a hill in Jerusalem that's just outside the walls of the old city. And that term, Mount Zion, has been used, well, originally in the Hebrew Bible, first for the city of David, and then it was used as a synonym for Jerusalem, as well as the whole biblical land of Israel. Anytime you see Mount Zion, you're speaking specifically of Jerusalem and of Israel generally. And yet here is God saying that the Gentiles are going to say, let us go to Jerusalem to learn about that God, for from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now there's no question what area we're talking about. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for the mighty distant nations. And then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Has that happened yet? No, absolutely not. We're still busy saber-rattling and preparing for war. But at some point, the Gentile nations, because the Prince of Peace is reigning and ruling from Jerusalem, all the nations of the earth are going to lay down their weapons of warfare because the King of Kings is on the planet. And now, finally, there is peace, that everlasting covenant of peace that God is going to make. And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts, there's that same name, has spoken it. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his own God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God, that is Yahweh our God, will walk in his statutes will walk in his name forever and ever. But in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. And I will make the lame a remnant. In other words, there'll be nobody left among the lame of the world. And the outcasts of a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. And as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, 
the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. The former dominion, what does that mean? That means just like you were the major nation in the Middle East. When Solomon was on the throne, kings and queens came from distances to come see both the wisdom and the splendor and the glory of Solomon. God says, remember back when you were like that? How about we do that again? I'm going to return you to your former dominion. And not only are you going to be the chief city in the Middle East, I'm going to make you the chief city in the world, the highest of all the mountains. And the Lord God said he's going to do it in the kingdom of the children of Jerusalem, which is what the phrase the daughter of Jerusalem means. How many times does God have to say something for it to be true? Only once. How many times now have we seen it? The promise of the kingdom and the restoration of Israel. How many times have we seen it? Repeatedly. And I'm just getting warmed up. Because this is a promise that just keeps coming and coming. Psalm 2, which you can turn to, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's referred to either directly or indirectly, but it keeps coming up. 60% of Psalm 2 is actually quoted in the New Testament. Everybody there, Psalm 2, I still hear pages turning. Why are the nations, the Gentile nations, the independent nations, the ones that do not fear God, why are the Gentile nations in an uproar and the peoples devising vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. That's really interesting that David could write that. 700 years in advance, 1,000 years in advance, 1,000 years in advance. He could write, that there's God and God's anointed and that the kings of the earth would hate him and they would take up counsel together and they would be against the Lord and his anointed and they would say, let us tear their fetters apart. Fetters are used to bind animals and they felt like the idea of God and Jesus was too binding on them. So let's... <laughs> Throw off those bonds. Sound familiar? So let us tear their fetters apart and let us cast away their cords from us. We want nothing to do with them and their rules. He who sits in the heavens is terribly worried <laughs> and concerned that the free will of these humans is bound to overtake his plan. Is that what it says? No. No. It says, God in heaven laughs. Have you ever had somebody who can do you no harm? Let's say one of Charlie's kids. They're all little guys. They're funny. They're also pugnacious. They're energetic. And, and like boys do, they like to wrestle. They like to fight. So far, am I right? This is just by observation here in church. I can only imagine what they're like at home. Okay, so let's say that one of them, let's just take Zeke, because I, I said Zeke earlier. Suddenly he decides that he is going to beat his dad up. Okay, at this moment as I'm saying it, Kenneth is smiling at his son. Because he knows his son can't do him any damage. So he is laughing at his son, at the very notion that his son right now at this age can actually whip up on his dad. And that makes Kenneth laugh. As I'm saying all this, Kenneth is literally laughing. Same thing here. The kings of the earth, the most powerful people on the planet, are Zeke in this scenario. The kings who think they're in charge say, we're going to throw God off. We're going to throw off his rules. We're going to throw off his bonds. We want nothing to do with him. And God in heaven laughs at them and holds them in derision. 
is the King James version of it. The NASB says the Lord scoffs at them. It means he makes fun of them. He's looking at them as pathetic because they think they can do some damage to the God of everything. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger, and he will terrify them in his fury. In other words, you think you're against me? Yeah, well, let me show you something. And then they are going to be terrified by his fury. Saying, this is God speaking, but as for me, since you want to throw me off, since you want to be done with me, you want to cast my bonds and cords aside, here, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, upon my holy mountain. That is God responding to the kings of the earth, saying, we want nothing to do with God. God says, oh yeah, I'm going to set my king up over all of you. And before I do that, I'm going to terrify you in my fury. That sounds very much like a great tribulation or a day of the Lord, followed by the kingdom of Christ in Jerusalem. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the Gentile nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. And now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. In other words, now that you know that, kings of the earth, smarten up, wise up. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. The King James in verse 12 says, kiss the sun. The idea of that kissing the NASB says, is do homage to the sun. Humble yourself before the sun. Get down on your face in front of that sun that he may not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath will soon be kindled. And how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Okay, so David the prophet, Isaiah the prophet, Ezekiel the prophet, Micah the prophet, what have they all said so far? The same thing. God keeps saying it over and over and over again. Now, by the way, when you get to the book of Acts in the New Testament, in Acts 4, starting at verse 25, you read Luke actually picking up that very event and that very prophecy and saying, when the Gentile nations were in conspiracy with the Jews to kill Christ, the way Luke recounted it is, that by the mouth of the servant David, it was said, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatsoever your hand and your counsel determined beforehand to be done. What is Luke referring to? The very fact that David already predicted it means it was no surprise when it actually happened, when Christ was on the planet and the rulers of the world rejected him and tried to cast off his bonds and tried to kill him so that they wouldn't have to have anything more to do with him. Luke picks it up and says, that's exactly what was prophesied in Psalm 2. Also then, Revelation 19, 19 says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse. That's Christ. And against his army, that's the saints that come back with him. So whether we're talking about David's time, whether we're talking about Luke's time, whether we're talking about John's revelatory time in the future, there is always this resistance against Christ. And yet, God laughs. Mm -hmm. 
And yet God mocks puny, little, egocentric, stupid worms like us and says, I have planted my king on his throne in Jerusalem and there is nothing you can do about it. Might I also add that men in their wisdom have constructed theologies that attempt to deny that that's what God is going to do. And God laughs because he has already said in his word what he's going to do. I've got a lot to cover here. Tom, look up Zechariah 8.22. Steve, look up Zechariah 14.9 if you would. For everybody else, turn to Zephaniah 3. Now I know you're going to have to look at the table of contents in the front of your Bible to figure out Zephaniah. Where exactly is Zephaniah? Which, by the way, if Kenneth and Charlie have a fourth boy, I'm thinking Zephaniah. (laughs) Just trying to follow the trend. Zephaniah 3. This is God speaking to Israel. On that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. How many deeds... Is Israel responsible for in their rebellion against God? Countless. I mean, it's, it's, it's as wide and as broad and as numerous as you could possibly imagine. You're talking about millions of people through the generations, through the ages, who have rebelled against God. And God says, on that day, that day to come when I'm going to gather you, when I'm going to put my spirit in you, when you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God, on that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. By the way, if he can promise that to Israel at some future date, isn't it good to know that that's the same God who said to you, despite your sin and despite your rebellion, the day is coming when you're going to feel no shame because you're going to be completely forgiven. You're not even going to remember what you used to be like. I'm waiting for that day because I'm about up to here with me. Higher. I'm about up to here with me. On that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud and your arrogant ones. And you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and a lowly people. And they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong... And tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and they will lie down with no one to frighten them. Does that sound familiar? We just read it. That they are going to be planted in their own land, and they will sit by their own vineyard and under their own tree, and there will be no one to upset them or no reason for them to fear. Because the Gentile nations have also destroyed their weapons of warfare. And the Gentile nations now flow to Jerusalem. So Zephaniah included it. Now we're going to go to Zechariah. Read Zechariah 8.22 for us, Tom, if you would. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Zechariah 12.10 then says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of pleading, so that they will look at me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for me, like one mourning for an only child or an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So at some point, Israel is going to be regathered. The house of David is going to be reestablished. The inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to have the spirit of grace. That's everything we believe in. That is the foundation of our salvation. That is also the foundation of Israel's salvation. The spirit of grace 
and mourning and pleading because they're going to look on him who they specifically have pierced. And because they have the spirit of God, they will recognize who he is and they will mourn over him like a mother mourns over her only lost child. That has to happen. Zechariah 14, 9, Steve, if you would. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. On that day, the Lord will be king over all the earth. How plain is this? This is just Bible, and so far, lots of Bible this morning. Zechariah 14, starting at verse 16, then goes on and says, Then it will come about that any of you who are left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem, so these are the Gentile nations that did warfare against Jerusalem, any of you who are left will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. Even the Gentile nations who fought against Israel are going to end up keeping Israel's feast day. And it will be, says verse 17, that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of the armies... There will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter into Jerusalem, then no rain will fall on them, and it will be the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. I keep saying the Gentile nations are going to flow to Jerusalem. How many times have we seen it? Blessings are going to come through Jerusalem and then be disseminated out to the nations through Jerusalem because that's where the king of kings sits. Okay, I have to really rush now because I am going to try to get done and I do have an ending place and it's an important ending place. So stick with me because I'm not going to be here next week. Isaiah 2 Starting at verse 2, now it will come. You're not going to have time to flip to all these, so just, just listen. Just, if you don't have the idea, if you don't have the point of this sermon by now, you're not going to get it, so you can go. But Isaiah 60, do me a favor real quick, Tom, and look up Revelation 22.5. Isaiah 60, starting at verse 18. Violence will not be heard again in your land, in Israel nor devastation, nor destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation, and you will call your gates praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness of the moon giving you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will no longer set, your moon will no longer wane, For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning, your sadness, will be over. And then all your people, he's speaking to Israel specifically, then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, so that I may be glorified. John is on the Isle of Patmos. At the end of the book of Revelation, he starts describing the everlasting city, which is called, coincidentally, the new Jerusalem. That's a hint that is built on the foundations of the 12 apostles and has 12 gates with the names of the 12 apostles over them. The same 12 apostles who Jesus said, when I sit on my glorious throne, you'll sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Tom is now going to read Revelation 22, 5, and it's going to sound exactly like what Isaiah just said. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Same thing. John sees it as still coming. Old Testament, New Testament, same promises. All the prophets of God speak with one voice. Do you know now why I keep saying that? Jeremiah three seventeen. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. 
and all the nations, the Gentile nations, will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. And nor will they walk anymore in the stubbornness of their evil hearts. Jeremiah 23, starting at verse 3, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their pasture. And they will be fruitful and multiply. And I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them. And they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel, the northern tribes, will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, that happened. But instead they will say, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland and from all the countries where I have driven them, and then they will live on their own soil. Are you getting a feel for this? Yes. Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, what fixed order? The sun for light by day, the moon and the stars by night, waves crashing on the shore. If that fixed order ever departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured or the foundations of the earth searched out below, then will I cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. <coughs> Amos 9.11, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen down, and I will repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And then Jesus comes to the planet. Now, I did not plan it this way. This is just good providence. Steve is going to be here next week. And then the Sunday right before Christmas, we're going to talk about the birth of the king. And you're going to see yet again that he was prophesied as king and that even kings from distant lands came. We sing it. We three kings. We have no idea what we're talking about. We're talking about foreign distant Gentile kings coming to do honor to the king of kings. And they even go to the king in Jerusalem and say, where is the king of the Jews? Because he is born the king of the Jews. And we're going to see yet again the New Testament prophecies of the very literal, very genuine, very physical kingdom to come. And that will be our Christmas message. So I began this morning by saying to you, that all the prophets speak with one voice. Do you see now why I say that? Yes. Do you have a good feel of what the prophets have all prophesied for Jerusalem? And for the Messiah that God is going to send? He didn't just come to forgive you for your sins. He came the first time to do that. He's coming again as King of Kings, as Lord of Lords. He's coming to establish his kingdom, his everlasting kingdom wherein is going to dwell peace and righteousness as an everlasting covenant from God. That hasn't happened yet, but the Bible keeps declaring over and over and over again that it has to happen. But given the great weight of evidence that I've shown you this morning, which evidence the first century Jews would know, because these are their scriptures and their prophets, can you see why when Jesus walked on the planet and preached the gospel of the kingdom, they knew what kingdom he was talking about? When he said, pray your kingdom come, 
They knew exactly what kingdom he was talking about. And never once do you ever read Jesus redefining the kingdom. The kingdom is established in the Old Testament, but then Christ came to fulfill it in the New Testament. And that's what we'll look at in two weeks. Grab a hymnal. Turn to hymn number 37. So let's sing about how great he is. How great thou art.
you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.